Do you know that Gary designed the, the Blue Devil costume, not Paris Collins? I read that in the back issue article. He, oh, okay. he made a figure for you too, didn't he? He did. It's yeah, oh, that's right. The figure. It's, it's I can see it right now. It's sitting above my uh, computer desk, and it's really lovely. If I can ask, how much did Paris change the designs, Gary? Um, enough to make it look good. <laughs> this episode, Once Upon a Blue Devil, an interview with Blue Devil co-creators Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. Hello, and welcome to the Once Upon a Geek Podcast, a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. On today's episode, we are continuing to find our joy discussing one of my all-time favorite characters in comic book series, Blue Devil. My name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I am your host, but I am not doing this alone, folks. Today, we have a fascinating interview with the co-creators of DC Comics' Blue Devil, the amazingly talented writers Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. Now, what you're about to hear is a recorded interview we did 14 years ago, back in the year 2009. And fair warning, this was the first audio I ever recorded. So, while the discussion's great, the audio itself's a bit so-so. I've done the best I can to clean up the audio, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. Additionally, this is the first time I ever interviewed comic book creators, so I was pretty nervous. Uh, Since then, I've done dozens of comic creator interviews, so I like to think I've gotten a little bit better at it. Now, this Blue Devil interview runs about 40 minutes, but that was just part of a much larger discussion. The original interview released in 2009 went for an hour and 40 minutes. Now, the other hour of that conversation was all about Amethyst, Princess of Gemerald, which was another of Gary and Dan's co-creations. Now, that original interview is still available on my old blog, Once Upon a Geek, and I'll post a link in the show notes. And it's a fascinating discussion covering Amethyst, and I, I highly recommend you check it out. Additionally, during the interview that you're going to hear, there are references to three other things I want to mention. Uh, the first is the original Blue Devil pitch proposal that was sent to DC by Gary and Dan. Uh, second is Gary's hand-drawn thumbnails of Blue Devil issue number one. And third is an excellent interview Dan and Gary did back in the year 2007 for Back Issue Magazine. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put links in the show notes to all three of those things. So be sure to check those out once you're done listening to this episode. As you listen, you'll notice along with me in this interview is my childhood friend, Ravenface. Now, we've been pals since the sixth grade, you know, growing up sharing all kinds of geeky interests. And uh, in this case, I was a Blue Devil fan, and he was the Amethyst fan. So if you listen to the Amethyst part of that interview, again, I mentioned it, the link's going to be on uh, in the show notes, uh, you'll hear a whole lot more Ravenface. Now, folks, Dan and Gary were, were an absolute joy to chat with, as you're about to find out. And if you want to follow Gary and Dan, you can find both of them on Facebook, and Dan is on Twitter as well. Before we get too much further, we do need to take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of Once Upon a Geek is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for comic book trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select a comic book collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's tied into our discussion in some way, shape, or form. And this time, I picked Dungeons & Dragons Classics Trade Paperback Volume 2. Now, you might be thinking, sure, there was a movie in the theaters recently, but what's this have to do with Blue Devil? 
Well, these adventures of Dungeons and Dragons were written by Jeff Grubb and Dan Mishkin. Yeah. So this collection uh, reprints issues number nine through eighteen of the original series. Uh, this particular publication is being put together by IDW. Art is by Jan Dershima. Page count is two hundred and fifty-six pages. It's full color. It's a soft cover. And if you're a fan of Dungeons and Dragons, or you're a fan of the movie, or you're a fan of Dan Mishkin, uh, any of the above, this is a great opportunity to enjoy some of these fantastic adventures uh, that are available for a very reasonable price. Normally it's $24.99, but you can get it for 35% off, so it's only $16.24. Again, 256 pages of awesomeness from Dan Mishkin, Jeff Grubb, and Jan Dershima. Can't beat that. So folks, for this and all your other comic book trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support. Because, you know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows and all the online hosting and all the other services and what that takes some money. And a while back, we realized we needed some help with the expenses. So we launched the Patreon, and you folks really stepped up to help us keep the network going. If you're enjoying the shows on the network, the best way to support us is by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And while you're there, please consider supporting the network. And to certain tiers, you get mentioned on your favorite show. This episode's special thanks go out to David Ace Gutierrez. Gutierrez, Gore Tolton, and Diablo Frank. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Folks, I need you to get involved. I want to hear from you. The whole point of this show is to celebrate our joy, and I mean that, all of our joy. So it's, this is for the collective geeky community. So let me hear your thoughts. Share your opinions on everyone's favorite weirdness magnet, Blue Devil, or the interview itself. The best way to be part of the conversation is on our website. Just visit fireandwaterpodcast.com slash onceuponageek and leave your thoughts on the show post for this episode episode, and they'll get mentioned on a future episode of our podcast. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter as Once Upon a Geek, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Once Upon a Geek Podcast. So normally, we read your feedback on every fifth episode of Once Upon a Geek. However, in this case, we'll be reading your comments on the Blue Devil episodes in the subsequent Blue Devil episode, meaning if you leave a comment on this episode over on the firewaterpodcast.com uh, website, we'll read your comment on the episode when we cover Blue Devil number one. All right, now I am going to play a quick podcast promo, and when we return, we will represent our interview from the year 2009 with Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn, the co-creators of Blue Devil. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Spanning from the first issue of Who's Who in 1985 all the way through the Loose Leaf edition. Including all the updates, the spinoffs, custom Who's Who pages for forgotten characters, and tons of in-depth character spotlights. Entries span from the golden age of DC. And into the extreme 1990s. Covering characters such as Superman by Kurt Swan and John Byrne. The Justice League by Kevin McGuire. Batman by Dick Giordano. The New Titans by Tom Grummet. Wonder Woman by George Perez. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. The Flash by Carmine Infantino. Lobo by Simon Bisley. The All-Star Squadron by Jerry Ordway. Firestorm by Al Milgram. Aquaman by Chuck Patton. So many entries talking about Ian Carcool. The Forever People again and again and again. And hundreds and hundreds of other characters found in Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available wherever you find podcasts and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Nuclear man, Batman, Hawkman, 2D man, and our man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's Who? Trekker Talk. 
a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by writer and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. Please join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series. Special episodes feature interviews with Ron Randall himself discussing Trekker and his other comics. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous backstreets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Listen at Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit TrekkerTalk.com. Trekker Talk is part of the Rad Adventures Network at RadAdventuresNetwork.com. I'm the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm here with Simon, also known as Ravenface. We had the opportunity to interview two creators that we respect and have enjoyed reading throughout our time reading comic books. That's right. Uh, we interviewed Dan Mishkin, who did a run on Wonder Woman back in the 80s. He also wrote the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons comic, and he more recently wrote a children's book, The Forest King, Woodlark Shadow. And Gary Cohen, who did she, Conqueror of the Barren Earth, and, most importantly, those little mini-comic books from Masters of the Universe action figures. I probably read all of them. They worked on a number of projects together, including House of Mystery, and they created both Blue Devil and Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. Amethyst, now, they... Princess of Gemworld. <laughs> now, they've been friends since junior high and have remained so to this day, which is interesting because both Simon and I have been friends since junior high and have remained so literally until this day because it's over after this podcast. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I would have to agree. You'll have to listen to all of the podcasts to see why. Uh, the answer will be revealed at the end. These guys were so generous with their time. So sit back, relax, enjoy us talking to Dan and Gary about Blue Devil and Amethyst, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. And just keep in mind, like, these guys are pros. They've been at it a long time. And I just love the idea that they were inspiring us when we were kids reading their comics, and they continue to work and inspire kids today with their writing and their teaching. Sit back, enjoy the origin of Amethyst Princess of Jim Rue, and uh, what's the devil character? Blue Devil! We're here talking to Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn, and I want to thank you both, gentlemen, for being so generous with your time and being here today. You're welcome. Not a problem. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Blue Devil and Amethyst, so we'll get right into it. You know, Blue Devil is tr- was truly a fan favorite comic. I was going, I was reading through it recently, and the letters page, I was shocked to find how many people wrote in letters that later went on to be comic professionals. Uh, Bo Smith was a huge supporter of Blue Devil. That's right. Michael Yuri, Will Pfeiffer, Tom Zaylor. I just kept seeing more and more names. So I thought that was that was a real testament that uh, those folks were obviously loved your work and were obviously inspired by it. Some of them are editors now, and I keep trying to get them to buy my work. We'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> you were my fan. Buy my work now. <laughs> this is a, just a quick note for those of you listening to the interview. Dan and Gary did a fantastic interview about Blue Devil for Back Issue Magazine about two years ago. In that interview, they discussed things such as uh, how they came together as a writing team, what inspired them to create Blue Devil, and what it's like working with Paris Cullens. Folks, this is the holy grail of Blue Devil interviews, so we're not going to retread all those same questions here. If you haven't read that excellent interview, go and download it. It's available as a digital download from Tomorrow's Publishing. Uh, it's back issue number 21. It's well worth your time, because I promise you this interview won't be nearly as good as that one was. Bye. <laughs> all right, Dan, Gary, you've written quite a lot together. Uh, how do you divide the writing responsibilities, and how did you stay in communication back in the 80s when Gary was in New York and Dan was in Michigan? Well, I'll take that. We, we stayed in communication via smoke signals and semaphore. 
and we really divide divide things fifty fifty. I write the even numbered words, and Dan writes the odd numbered words. So it, it's something like that. Yeah, the truth is that how it has worked on different projects has varied. You know, project to project. I, wouldn't you say, Gary? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we use the smoke signals. Sometimes we use the semaphore. Yeah, that's right. And I was been, but I mean, as far as you know, even from the earliest time when we were doing the House of Mystery kind of stories, sometimes it would be almost all Gary's story or almost all mine, and with one of us kind of uh, looking over the other shoulder. And sometimes it would be fifty-fifty, and sometimes it would be one person mostly plotting and the other person mostly scripting or dialogue. But it really, it's kind of all over the map. I think one difference between Gary and me is that he's more of a big picture person, and I'm more of a detail person. And how that plays out in a particular story will vary. But Gary's one of these people who has a plot before you turn around. And I'm one of these people who will make sure that I've come up with exactly the right word. So that's, I guess, the most extreme example of his big picture in my detail-oriented approach. Gotcha. Yeah, our most common mode, though, really, is when he was in Michigan, (laughs) in New York, we spent a lot of time on the phone. And what happens is we just start talking, and we've known each other for so long that we start to banter back and forth with an idea, and it just evolves. It's that simple. We start with a thought or a premise or a title or whatever whatever it is that's sparked one of us. And as it starts to take basic shape, character, situation, problem, we start to discuss the problems that, that come up in developing a plot, you know, the who, what, where, when, why stuff. Right. And it just starts to take shape. And we'll get to a certain point and recognize after half hour, 40 minutes that we've gone as far as we can at that point, And we'll just back off from it and talk a day or two later and pick up where we left off. And that yeah, seems we, to work. Yeah, we, have no, we have no trouble talking to each other and batting around <laughs> ideas and telling, us, telling each other when we think the other's ideas are stupid and all of that. So it works out pretty well. You know, like Gary said, we've known each other for a very long time. The other thing that that abetted this process nicely was, I think because DC Comics didn't have much experience with people who didn't live in town, uh, in New York, uh, working with them uh, when we came along, they actually reimbursed us for phone calls to each other. I don't know what they were oh, thinking. Wow. Yeah, but for, for, for a number of years, <laughs> I would just send in, I just send in my phone bills with my calls to Gary Circle. You know, and, and they'd write that check. <laughs> You guys are talking about baseball or something, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very bizarre. <laughs> Just a, a follow-up on that, since uh, Gary is uh, like so visually oriented and also draws or designs things, did you find that you uh, sketched along with the conversations like while you were uh, talking about ideas? Not usually, but I was, I was a little bit notorious for uh, my thumbnails at one point. My, my my thumbnails are pretty silly because I'm not really an artist. I'm one of those guys who can scribble down something that's roughly what I'd like it to be, but I can't do anything that's, that looks like finished comic book work. But I, I drew in thumbnails of entire issues at one point and would pass them on to... When, when we were doing things like the House of Mystery stuff, I'd pass in those thumbnails thinking that, okay, this is going to, you know, Gray Morrow or somebody like that, they're going to take these thumbnails and really do incredible things with it and, and dazzle me with, with how much better their stuff is. And there are a couple of them who just did absolutely literal renditions of my thumbnails. And that, was, wow. that was never the intent because my thumbnails are not damn good, but... <laughs> Still, you should get you should get layout credit or something like that. Yeah, yeah. There, there were stories where I ended up doing the entire layout, which was not what I intended. 
Well, speaking of artistry and some of the artists you work with, while you were on Blue Devil, you had the opportunity to work with legends like Gil Kane, Keith Giffen, Ernie Colon, and Dan Jurgens. How is working with these artists different from working with regular Blue Devil artist Paris Cullens? Well, I, you know, I think that I think that every artist is different, and working with somebody regularly is different from working with somebody as a one shot. Paris and Gary, especially, since they could be in the same room together, had a style that resulted in the uh, the production of the art. For the, Gary, you should probably tell about how you and Paris worked together. Yeah, Paris would come and stay in my apartment for two, three days at a time, and we'd sit at the table and just cackle over what we were creating. He'd, he'd be sketching his, his rush. Paris is very, very fast. Paris, Paris is one of these guys who's got a magic pencil. Where um, I don't think he really has any talent at all. I think he owns a pencil, and, <laughs> and the pencil has has been cursed or blessed, and and the art comes out of the pencil because Paris Paris can actually be looking over your shoulder talking to you, and this amazing stuff is coming out of the pencil. He's not even looking at the paper, so that's the strongest clue about that. Um, Paris and I got along really well. I just recontacted Paris for the first time in about ten years. Past couple of weeks, we've been talking, and we still play off each other really well. So Paris fit in very, very well with the mix that Dan and I had. And right. he was very good at sight gags. He was very good at, at dynamic action mixed with sight gags, which is a rare skill. And I don't know that I've seen too many people who can do that, where the, the action matters and yet the jokes are there too. You know, uh, a few years later, more than a few years later, when we did a short Blue Devil series in uh, in Showcase in the mid-90s, Neil Posner, who was the editor, was was talking about how you do a Blue Devil story. And of course, I mean, we have created the character, obviously, so we knew how to do it. But he is an outsider with a keen editorial eye. You know, said, for the most part, when you look at a Blue Devil story and you just look at the pictures, you don't look at the words, you don't know that it's funny, which I think is largely true. I think that what that wasn't entirely true in the case of, of Paris, because Paris could draw funny, he could do, do you know mugging and visual gags, and have it seem very seamless with the action adventure type art. That's really hard to do, as, as Gary is saying. When Paris wasn't doing it, we were better off with somebody who would just draw straight action, and if there's going to be something funny about it, it would come out of the situation, come out of what the characters said to each other, uh, because there's a danger if somebody tries to draw funny. You know, when somebody starts drawing funny, they really lose the action, they lose some of the, the dynamic visual with, storytelling. With two exceptions, both Giffen and Ernie Cologne well, yes, that was, yeah. can do that too in their own yeah. ways. Yeah, and, and Ernie can definitely do it, and uh, Keith is really good. Keith did that one issue that I, I really liked a lot, and in that particular case, Keith called me up while he was drawing the issue, and he said, if I can get from whatever, page page 8 when this fight scene begins to page 14 when you need them to be such and such a place, can I just do whatever I want? I said, sure. So uh, he did, and so there's this fight scene in the middle of that issue number 8 of Blue Death, that pretty much has a starting point and an ending point that Gary and I provided, and Keith just ran with it, which was wonderful. That was a particularly funny issue. Yeah. A lot, yeah. Of, lot of fun. You know, if, he, if you've got the right artist, this is the easiest job in the world. They're writing a comic book? Yeah. Writing comics, yeah. <laughs> you've created a, a lot of interesting support characters and villains in the Blue Devil book. Were there any of them that you enjoyed writing more than others? I think we're probably both going to say Wayne. 
Wayne, <laughs> yeah. well, Wayne was fun. I, I don't know. When I look at Blue Devil, thinking about the characters, I really, really like Norm. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I think the response, the responses that we're giving might have something to do with our personalities. You know, Norm is like in another rather more heroic version would be uh, Dennis Haysbert in the unit. You know, I have this desire to be the big guy who knows what he's doing all the time. And I don't know why you would like to be like Wayne. Maybe that's not the right way of describing it. Oh, no, him. I, I wouldn't like to be like Wayne. I know, I enjoyed I know. writing him. Uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed know. writing him because he was such a, such a jerk. Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good description. <laughs> I like the, the villains. Uh, Shockwave was a lot of fun. Nebiros. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't say Nebiros, Gary. Right. I mean, ne- Nebiros was, was the best. Good right. Because okay. he, he's so stupid. <laughs> and and yeah, yeah, he's just, you know, anybody who's ever, ever written Nebiros since and not understood that his overriding quality is incredible stupidity has, uh, <laughs> has just not understood the character. Yeah, Gary, Gary said to me one time that, uh, that Nebiros is, is stupid in a way that only the immensely powerful could be. You know. <laughs> you realize, of course, that Nebiros never figured out that Blue Devil was a human being in, in a costume. Right, it was always little brother. Yeah, he thought he was a demon. I mean, that's really stupid. Uh, he was a great character. Well, I love how Blue Devil would attack him, and like two pages later, he's like, thanks, pal. He's trying to be his buddy again. That's right, yeah. And you answered a question I've been wondering for 25 years, which was how to pronounce Neberos. I've always wondered. So Now you know. And I would be criminally negligent if, if I didn't mention here that as a fan, I also loved Smitty and Rojek, the two henchmen that would show up from time to right. time. Right. They were Abbott and Costello. Yeah. That's who, ah. that's who they were patterned after. Now, Gary, was that you or was that Paris who created those? Um, I really have no idea. Okay. <laughs> I just don't know. There they were. Yeah. But they were, they were Abbott and Costello. Do you guys have any uh, favorite issues or storylines from your Blue Devil work? Yeah. Uh, Blue Devil Summer Fun number one. Oh, genius okay. p- book. I think that's, yeah. that's that's where everything at Blue Devil was came together. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, I liked the first six issues a lot. It established the character, the beat, the approach, the the whole everything about it. And Paris was doing this wonderful stuff. And when he came back and did the Summer Fun issue, it was like he was really getting on his game for one you know last hurrah or whatever you want to call it. The other one that I really really enjoyed was that one that Keith gifted it, issue number eight. It was just a lot of fun. That was the uh, that was the the bank robbery in the air. That's yeah. right. The, the trickster yeah. trying yeah. to rob yeah. the bank. Yeah. And that and was, the, was the a, special shoes. Right. Right. <laughs> oh, I just reread all these recently. And, uh, those 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 definitely stick out as two of the most fun issues out there. No doubt about it. Good. Now you wrote an issue of DC Comics Presents and an issue of Secret Origins, both featuring Blue Devil. Were what were some of the differences when writing those issues as compared to writing the monthly book? That the was Secret the one Origins with Terra Man, right? Yes, yeah, exactly yeah. right. With what? Yeah, Terra Man. The oh super, yeah, the I, I remember that. Um, you know, with the, the train or something. Yeah. See how well I remember? I I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Dan, you take that one because yeah. What you, you don't remember, remember Gary, is that is that I was kind of struggling with that, and I was playing with Julie Schwartz about it, and not seeming to go anywhere, and I. Was sort of started the conversation with him and I think you were you and I were not doing so much work together at that time and I was maybe go- and I had done, done a bunch of stuff for Julie on my own and I think that I was going to just do that issue but I realized it wasn't coming together and I needed Gary to uh, to do it it's hard sometimes to just get to what the core of the story is when I talked before about being a detail person the, the downside of that is that I overthink things too much and Gary 
this is going to sound like you don't think at all. I don't mean that. Gary doesn't overthink. You know, Gary <laughs> understands the the core idea right away in, in a way that I sometimes miss. And I think when you're doing a one-shot story, it's really easy for that to happen. I mean, that's one of the big differences between working on an ongoing series and doing a one-shot is that you have to understand the essence of the story. And sometimes, I, I got to say that I think that Julie did this too, uh, you get bogged down in the stuff. You know, this is going to happen and then that's going to happen. And you're hanging ornaments on the Christmas tree, but you don't know if it's a, you know, a, a pine tree or a spruce or a, or a maple or what, you know, and, and it's helpful to know what the thing really is. And doing the secret origin story, on the other hand, wasn't so hard because we knew what the story was already. That was a fun retelling, though. I, I enjoyed that a lot, actually. Yeah, I, I seem to remember recalling it, too. Didn't Calvin and Hobbes show up in that story, too? They may have. I think they did. Ty Templeton drew that, yes? Yeah. 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 Oh, right. Now I yeah. remember. Now I was sitting here saying, yes, I think we did this. I, I seem to remember <laughs> vaguely. <laughs> and I do realize but, we're asking you guys about stuff years ago. But, so, but now you mentioned Ty Templeton, absolutely. I do. Ty is terrific. Ty is just great. I love his stuff. He, uh, he definitely seemed to be able to capture the same fun uh, that Paris did. Yeah. I, I thought it was good. So Blue Devil's first appearance was in a special preview in The Fury of Firestorm number 24. Was that always intended to be the character's premiere, or was the preview conceived after Blue Devil number 1 had been written? And uh, any particular reason the Firestorm book was chosen? I don't recall that, that that was something that was planned ahead of time. DC was experimenting with these previews, but what we presented in the original proposal began with issue 1. So wherever it came in the process, the preview was... Uh, was after we we already had an idea of what the main story was, which of course meant we were going to have to figure out how to do a story where he wasn't stuck in the costume yet, and still make it exciting for the readers to whom we could not reveal some of the facts about what the character was going to be. What it meant was that we had laid some claim to Trickster without without even realizing it. I think we had just mm-hmm. been looking for somebody who who would fit that, and Trickster was fun. Trickster was interesting. We. Threw him in, and from that point on, he became part of Blue Devil's whole whole shtick. Blue, he played a big part in Blue Devil, and he did. You know, I, I really enjoyed writing him too. At one point, Dan, I had even brainstormed a Trickster miniseries. Oh, that would with, have been a blast with a Blue Devil cameo. Yeah, it would have been great, but you know, sometimes the people at DC didn't understand the greatness of what we were doing. I don't, under, I don't get why that was. <laughs> yeah, so they, the other thing mind. about. <laughs> the other thing about the using the trickster in that is that I'm, I'm pretty sure that the coloring of the Blue Devil character, he became the color blue that he is because his first appearance was with the trickster, who also had some blues in his costume. I think that Blue Devil would have been a darker blue. I was kind of imagining it that way. Uh, would have been a darker blue if it hadn't been for the dark blue in in, uh, in the trickster's cape. <laughs> he, he is kind of a darker blue now, which yes, is interesting. Right. You should mention that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the trickster portrayal you guys did was fantastic. I think it's still. I think it informed the character a lot for for a number of years to come. I mean, if you look even at the, the Jeff Johns Flash stuff, you could still see some of those elements and uh, just traits. I felt like that you guys had started uh, of that character on the on the right side of the law, and and it just it really carried well. Well, you know, Gary and I really. really really love the Flash's Rogues Gallery. Uh, and we even did a secret origin of the Flash's Rogues Gallery one time. Oh. And the thing that I like about that, I, I, they're interesting, they're colorful, but the, the, you know, the costumes and all of that. But one of the things that really appeals to me is that they're guys who were probably at one point standing on the line between good and bad when it comes to how they're going to use these superpowers. And mm-hmm. which way they fell was 
almost an accident. It could have gone either way. And so these guys who were right on the line, you know, to me, speaks about what superhero comics are largely about, which is finding a moral compass. So those characters are really appealing. And it was easy then to take a character like the trickster and say he could he could pretty easily go the other way. He would he could be a bad guy, never a villain, right? Never evil. He could be yeah. a, he could be a bad guy with some redeeming qualities, or he could be a good guy who was also kind of a jerk or con man or whatever. Uh, and that's 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 really that's really appealing. In fact, the the trickster miniseries that we were going to do really played with that idea. Uh, the the premise was that uh, we start out with with the trickster having a you know a sparring relationship with some local superhero in some city uh, character we we made up just for the purpose of the story because the hero gets killed in the first issue of the miniseries by a real badass supervillain. And so mm-hmm. the trickster is the one who takes revenge, kind of being a good guy. But first, he uh, decides to get out of town real fast. Well, yeah, well, that, that's right. No, but, but you know, he was—he wasn't quite able to shed that sense that evil ought to be avenged. To use and, uh, a cliche, this was, his, this was kind of kind of like Sam Spade when when uh, when Archer is killed. You know, right. this is his superhero, and somebody killed his superhero, and, and somebody right. when a man's partner is killed, you got to do something about it. Right. When some, <laughs> when a man's superhero is killed, you got to do something about it, even if you didn't much like him. It's a, it's a matter of principle for the trickster. Right. Yeah, you know, one thing that can make a character interesting, especially a, a bad guy, interesting, is when you discover that they have principles. You know, we were talking recently uh, to somebody about Dark Opal, who has no principles except for his own advancement, right? And that's a great kind of villain. But the one who ends up having principles, and maybe is potentially tripped up in his criminal career by the fact that somewhere in him beats the heart of redemption, is, you know, could be a great story. Moral ambiguities is interesting because... Well, we, we like we like characters who are archetypes. You know, we like characters who are all one thing and symbolic. But but if you really want to think about a character, you want a character who's who's not that, who's got some moral ambiguity. Yeah, I think we all missed out on a fantastic miniseries, and uh, I'm sorry we're never going to get to read that. It's true, you, you really missed out. One of these days, I'm I'm thinking that I will get my website put together and post all my failed proposals uh, because mm. there's some pretty good stories. In- and just maybe the miniseries you imagined, Shag, is lots better than it really would have been. So keep imagining <laughs> a really good one. Well, it's really good in my head, so okay. I'm going with that. Yeah, art is beautiful. <laughs> Enjoy <Very> it. <laughs> It's genius, in fact. <laughs> Getting back a little bit on Blue Devil, I, I read previously about one third of Blue Devil number one was reworked and redrawn. Would you uh, would you be willing to elaborate on some of the types of changes that were made? And do you think the original version was stronger, or, or do you think it benefited from the changes? Well, the the decision to make the changes was completely ours. It was at the recommendation of Jeanette Kahn, who was the publisher of DC Comics, but. She made that recommendation because of a a sharp and clear-sighted reading of what we were producing. The first issue of Blue Devil, as we originally did it, was too dark. Jeanette basically said, okay, I've read your preview and your first issue and your second issue, and the first issue isn't enough like the preview and issue two. There's a little too much, oh, poor me, and, and breastfeeding. And, you know, at one point, Gary and I decided, either before or after Jeanette's comment, I, I'm not sure exactly, but we at least had in mind that that Blue Devil's predicament of being stuck in the costume was never going to be played like Ben Grimm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and there was even though he doesn't get stuck in the costume till the end of the first issue. I wish it was. I wish I could remember all the details. I think what Jeanette picked up on was a kind of oh poor me or oh this is so deadly dangerous or a, a, a negativity that certainly did dominate the issue. But it was it was there, and it needed to be faster and more sprightly, and that's what we did. I think we came up with a new opening, and then we actually rearranged. I remember cutting up photocopies of the pages of the original and taking like two panels here and moving them over there and uh, doing stuff like that, and then asking Paris to draw the new opening and, and fill in a couple of other places. And then we did dialogue over the whole thing and made it seamlessly fit. I honestly can't remember any details about what the original was, and I wish I had saved it, but I, I have no idea. But it, I think it was a smart move. It really helped us create the Blue Devil that everybody remembers. In that in that back issue interview, did we talk about the origins of Blue Devil? How it had originally that it was originally going to be a fourteen page feature in House of Mystery or House of Secrets or something like that. I think it was Tales um, of the Unexpected. But go ahead. Yeah, you talked a lot about that, and you talked about Steve Ditko. Okay, too. okay, so so you know that story. It's a fantastic story. If you want to relate it again, you're welcome to. However, whichever way you want to go, I'm fine. Um, well, send the reader, send the listeners to back issue. There we go. That's right. Little money for Michael Yuri, one of your previous fans. <laughs> That's right. And you know, I, I I think I would say though that that probably it was the it was the Ditko connection and the Ditko thinking and the, the Spider Manish aspect of Blue Devil as we originally conceived him that may have contributed to the first issue being a little more brooding and that's probably the right word that the first issue was a little more brooding than than it ended up being when we revised it. Well, I think the uh, the revised version came out excellent. So oh, whatever you. changes you made, brilliant. Well, it's right, and there's no we were... there's no historical record here, so we can say whatever we want. <laughs> exactly. So funny because right right before the interview, Shag and I were discussing how it seemed like a lot of this material was almost like a last gasp of fun before everything got very dark with uh, Crisis and Infinite Earth, and then you know, uh, you know Watchmen, Dark Knight, and then all that that uh, led into. But I suppose even though my memory of everything is is is, is, is light fantasy. And and fun. Uh, there are a lot of. <laughs> there is. It's, it's almost a precursor to all these dark things. I mean, lots of people die in Amethyst. Uh, the original concept of Blue Devil was maybe you were pushing towards a, a darker, more pink type of character. Don't forget that the, um, the the tagline on the poster for Blue Devil was "We've made comics fun again." So somebody at DC believed that there was already plenty of darkness that needed to be combated by a little light. Well, you know, I'm glad you we brought that up. Was that your goal to make comics fun? again or were you trying to achieve something else and a quick question on that too do you think that your work on blue devil helped pave the way for later fun comics like justice league international i think it definitely did that but i don't think either that or or making a statement or a change in the status of comics was ever our goal we wanted to tell and sell this story (laughs) i mean that's that's it don't ever underestimate the goal of making money Um, You know, Walt Kelly, I'm a big fan of, of Pogo, and Walt Kelly in his, uh, in his big collection uh, from the late 50s, 10 out of 11 Blue Ideas with Pogo, described the com- his comic strip as a way of having fun and making money at the same time, which I think is a wonderful goal. You know, and, and and that's the goal we had in Blue Devil. We were going to have fun, and we hoped that readers would too. But really, you know, I don't think Gary or I ever do much writing with the intention of what will the audience want. You know, imagining that we're we're doing something tailored to a particular group. That's that really you know, stultifies your writing. I think, in a large sense, we really do write for ourselves. We mm-hmm. we write for the for the delight of 
the story that we're coming up with. And, you know, you have to have some sense that there's an audience beyond yourself that's going to appreciate this, but there's also a certain faith that you're representative enough of the audience so that there's a lot more of you out there. Right, I agree with that. You definitely tapped into your own interests that uh, cross the lines to definitely what the rest of us enjoy. So yeah, and, and as far as far as being a precursor to uh, to other stuff, you know, I I think it's probably it's probably true, and I think that Gary and I have had a little bit of a tendency. And I'm going to brag on ourselves, both of us, a little bit. I think we're sometimes a little ahead of the curve, as witness the fact that the Keith Giffen, Mark Demattis, Kevin McGuire, uh, Justice League made made a lot more money uh, for everybody. Than- <laughs> <laughs> that Blue Devil did for us, uh, you know. But even you know, doing something like Amethyst, which really, really presaged a, an interest in in a kind of a, a girl power kind of uh, you know idea, and we just happened to be in the right place a little ahead of our time. Were there were there any situations where? editorial or company-wide events impacted your plans? Did uh, the Crisis on Infinite Earth tie-in stories come naturally, or did they create challenges for you? I would say, for me, that was just an incredible pain in the ass. And it was, <laughs> it, was, it was, why are these people messing with us? Why are they intruding on us? Why are they, why are they trying to impose this big thing on something that we've got flying and we know what we want to do? And is this nice little discreet thing that pokes around in the DC universe once in a while and brings brings the, the other characters in, but brings them in for fun. And why do we have to do this? And I, I really think that was my, my reaction. And, of course, the answer was obvious about why we had to do it, but I was still pretty grumpy about it. Um, I, I think my reaction to the uh, Crisis on Infinite Earth stuff was different from Gary's. I, I took a sort of, well, why the hell not approach. And, and I think I should say that I had probably already been more actively having back and forth stuff and kibitzing on the whole project. If you if you pick up the absolute volume of Absolute Crisis on Infinite Earths reproduced in there is all a set of notes that I sent to Marv Wolfman saying, oh, maybe you could do this, maybe you could do that. So I was really playing the role of kind of good soldier part of the DC team, which is not a role Gary was ever comfortable with, I think we have to say. Would you agree, Gary? Yeah, I'd agree. Um, okay. I think my, my big mistake was early on sending a long, long, long letter memo to Dick, Paul, and Jeanette telling them how I thought, what I, what I thought were the great opportunities for the comics business. And yeah. filling out all my, my thoughts about how to really do this right. And, you know, that's the last that management wants to hear. Really. <laughs> yes. Well, recently so I, I've, I've adopted more like your approach, Gary. I don't have I don't have time to play the little make nice games so much anymore. So when I had a meeting with some people at DC in San Diego last year, I I basically said politely, I said, you know, I really don't want to tell you how to do your business, but honestly, if I were you, this is what I would do. And you know, mm. one of the things I actually was going to say in response to the crisis question, uh, you were talking about how we dabbled with the, with the uh, DC universe characters, but you know, I really feel like one thing we did right at the beginning of the series was plunge into the DC universe. I mean, we had Metropolis, we had Metallo, we had Superman, we had Zatanna, we had the Elongated Man. We had all this stuff saying, Blue Devil, new character, sure, but it's right here in DC Link, you know? And that's actually what I was telling people last summer at San Diego. You need new characters that are part and parcel of the DC universe. You need to grow and expand the way we did in the early 80s with things like Blue Devil and Booster Gold and Amethyst and all of that. Uh, So I was willing to cooperate on Crisis. I I think my issue with Crisis was probably that I liked the DC universe just fine the way it was. And thought that Ah. was a really pleasant place to play with and, and in, and I didn't want to change very much. 
Right. Well, you've always been a conservative. Yeah. <laughs> well, they they changed a lot of it back to the way that it was used to be, Gary. So it uh, might be a little more friendly for you now. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the people who might might hire me probably aren't any friendly with those. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they'll take some of Dan's pointers. Uh, I think there's a lot of fans out there, Dan, that uh, would echo what you just said. Yeah, I, I and I really I don't quite understand. Even though I've had you know very cordial conversations with the folks in charge at DC, I don't understand why it's so important to wring out the last bit of juice from some old character instead of saying let's find a new one it's it's not that nobody would create them i mean gary and i created characters that we don't own for dc and have had some regrets about that but you know but i'd still do it again under the right circumstances because if you're going to do superheroes it's a whale of a lot of fun to play in the sandbox that dc and marvel have already established and if you want to really create something new that's the place to do it but maybe that's just me since we're speaking of crossovers, uh, there was a crossover between Blue Devil, uh, number 23, and Firestorm, number 46 and 47. Do you guys happen to remember how the, the crossover between Firestorm and Blue Devil came about? Was that a little more organic, or was it similar to the, the cross, Crisis crossovers? And um, did you guys work with Jerry Conway to ensure the continuity between the books? I'll bet Dan remembers. I didn't remember, but but you, you told us you'd be asking about this particular uh, thing, so I, <laughs> so I went back and looked it over and jogged my memory. The answer is, our editor thought it would be a good idea, you know, for the typical crossover reasons. You could maybe get the reader of one book interested in another, and both both books at that time could use a little bump in sales. Uh, so that's, I think, how it came about. Our editor, Alan Gold, and the Firestorm editor at the time, uh, Janice Race, I think shared an office at that point. And they did, you know, they decided to do it. As far as interacting with Jerry, you know, I don't think we did. I think it was basically Jerry's story, and he just left some spaces for us, and we came up with something that more or less worked. You know, look, I, I read it, I reread it the other day. It's not great. It was not a great period in the life of our comic book, anyway. It was the stuff that was happening was uneven. Gary, you were going through some difficulties in your personal life, and I was flailing a little bit when you and I couldn't spend as much time as we normally did. And, you know, sorry to say, Putting together a comic book isn't just fun and games and ideas springing out of your head all the time. This makes me think of the time my uh, my doctor saw that my blood pressure had been high for uh, for a few visits now and, and said, you know, any stress is going on in my life. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of office politics these days. He said, office politics? You're a comic book writer. And I had to kind of sit him down. Oh, jeez. I, I had to sit him down and say, you know, Jim, it's a job. It's my job. And all jobs have office politics. And worse, I live 700 miles away from the office. So it's really hard for me to have much influence over it. So, you know, the, the truth is the jobs have office politics. Decisions get made on the basis of needs that are not necessarily your personal needs. And sometimes as a creative person, you're not there the way you wish you could be. And and honestly, I think that this, this period on Blue Devil and this, this crossover, it was just trying to keep the pot boiling. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, and also I, I, also getting a paycheck. I might not have mentioned. Right. <laughs> well, I do think uh, Firestorm is a good example of what you were talking about a minute ago, where you said uh, new, fresh characters and throwing him in there in the deep end of the DC universe, because that's something they did with him. It, admittedly, it was done in 78 rather than, you know, 83 or 84. Right. But uh, those, are, those are two good examples. Blue Devil and Firestorm are two good characters of what you were talking about. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Create something new. Yeah, that's right. And, and in the case of, of Firestorm, I know that a uh, character that well, lasted for a while, but maybe never quite broke through in, in terms of sales the way they, they would have
have hoped or, or not for very long. But it was also a character that made a lot of money for DC on licensing, you know. Yep. And it's smart to create these things and to see what will happen. But again, I'm not the person in charge. So. <laughs> well, speaking of fun characters, you guys uh, included in the Blue Devil series Jock Werner in The Vanquisher. Now, I only, I'm only i not trying to delve too deep in the weeds here. They just I just noticed that those two characters happen to be a nod to an OMAC story you'd written a few years before that. And it wasn't was not really publicized very much in the Blue Devil comic. You had to read the letters page to even figure it out. So I was wondering, do you guys recall any other sort of Easter eggs, as they call them on DVDs nowadays, in either the Blue Devil or Amethyst series that the casual reader may not have picked up on that you guys put in because you thought it was fun? Yeah, I can't really think of anything. You know, we weren't like trying to create a secret Mishkonaverse or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> when you write, you're kind of like a magpie, you know? You're just stealing little bits if they're stealable in the buy. Who better to steal from than yourself? That's right. Steal from the best, I always say. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I don't recall any of that kind of Easter egg thing. I think there are, you know, aspects of what we were doing where, you know, there's more things underneath. Uh, when people find out the workings of it, they would be interested to know, you know, that there's actually, I remember a line that I wrote, I wrote for Amethyst where Dark Opal says to, uh, to Amethyst something like, you know, belittling her power, he says something like, you're nothing but a babe in arms compared to me. And I realized as I wrote that, that line on a legal pad, a big fat, uh, arm of my armchair, I was holding a baby in my, in my other arm, <laughs> my first, my first daughter, you know, and it's like, well, that's actually pretty funny. So it, it's interesting to know where some of your ideas and your lines come from. But as far as there being Easter eggs, I don't, I don't think they were that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, every, every long lasting character evolves and changes. Uh, assuming the original Blue Devil series had not been canceled, what direction and changes would you guys have made in the Blue Devil series? Um, we had a proposal once, Paris and I came up with it, and Dan came aboard really quickly, and we got very excited about it. This was right after the death of Superman, and the idea was that Blue Devil and his entire cast of characters had been in Coast City when it was destroyed. Oh. And he was vaporized and reconstituted in some hellish Netherland. He's a twisted, deformed version of himself, um, missing one horn. And it turns out to be Neberos's dimension. And he kills Neberos and takes all Neberos's powers. And the, the name of the series Paris came up with was Midnight Blue. And regains his trident, which is uh, possessed by a female demon, and finds a way back to our world and sets his, himself the task of hunting down and destroying world beaters before they get there. So that hmm. he's going he's gonna to take a preemptive approach to characters like uh, Mongol and other characters like that and hunt them down and kill them before they can fuck up this world again. I was real keen on it, and I think we all were. And yeah. we, we had images, we had storylines, we'd, we'd done a package proposal on a par with the package proposals we'd done for Amethyst Blue Devil that I'd done for Baron Earth, and we showed it around and got zero interest. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but I think, that, like a... I think that may be because they had decided that the character wasn't viable at that time. After all, it was not that much earlier that the series had been had been canceled. This was, I think, this was something that. Look, I'm not, I'm not defending. Them. I think anything we did could have, uh, along that line could have been great. Even in Paris, it would have been terrific. And DC and probably people too, although I have much experience with them, often cannot figure out the reason for for the failure of a comic, which in the case of Blue Devil was largely their lack of support. I think so. They see it as as our failure, and they they, they let it lie. But Midnight Blue was was a very good proposal. It was darker. It was scarier. And we had a notion, though, that there was still going to be a kind of unsettling humor. I was, I was really keen to do yeah. that. 
There was also an, another thing that we proposed before that, Gary, and you'll probably remember when I say it, but toward the end of the actual run of Blue Devil. With, with Dennis Cowan. Dennis Cowan, right, yeah. Uh, Barbara Kiesel took over as editor, and we met together with Dennis, and we also talked about something that would have been a little more raw, a little darker, but DC at that point, I don't think they felt that it was it was worth trying to pursue. Well, we had to go ahead, and we were working on, on the issue, and then it was canceled. But there's going to be a, an angel character, as I recall. Right. Well, we had to go ahead in the sense that our editor was was ready to do it, but she couldn't convince DC to give us an opportunity to actually make it happen. So. Right. Both of those sound like really interesting uh, proposals that I wish I'd, we'd all gotten to read. Okay, we are back from the year 2009, safe and sound now, back in good old 2023. I hope you enjoyed that fantastic discussion with Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. Weren't they awesome? Oh, man, those guys, they are so cool. I love chatting with them. Now, folks, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode for the links I mentioned, including the original Blue Devil pitch proposal sent to DC, uh, Gary's hand-drawn thumbnails of Blue Devil issue number one, uh, an excellent interview Dan and Gary did back in the year 2007 for Back Issue magazine and the full-length audio for this interview you just heard including another hour discussion all about dan and gary's other co-creation amethyst princess of gemworld again huge thanks to gary Cohn and dan mishkin for their time discussing their creation of blue devil i sincerely appreciate it and i hope you folks at home enjoyed it too now come back next episode when we cover another topic that brings us joy what will that topic be? Sorry, folks, you're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And remember, life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. Find your joy.